Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. My senior year of college started in the spring of 2020. I don't know if many of you remember that spring, but there are a few things that happened that year. You know, COVID, masks, lockdown, increasing division in America and the world. Um, and through all of these things, they, uh, all these things halted my plans that I had for myself during my senior year. Studying abroad, getting an internship, finding a career. I praise God now that I didn't do all of these different things, but in the moment, I was angry with God. In the moment, I was upset that he wasn't giving me all these good things. Have you guys been angry with God? Have you ever wanted things that you didn't have or that you thought that you deserved? Being in lockdown meant I had a lot of time to think and a lot of time to read. I loved thinking about philosophical questions and theological ideas, um, but thankfully I was also encouraged to read books, especially on spiritual growth. One of these books was the Bible, thankfully. Um, and I remember there was a particularly low point in my life at the start of that summer where I just felt like I was drowning in my sin. Um, I had a phone call with a mentor of mine later that summer because I had some theological questions I was hoping that he could, he could give me the answers to. I was hoping that the, the words that he would speak would provide some sort of satisfaction, that the answers that he had would give me the satisfaction to the emptiness I was feeling in myself at the time. That conversation actually ended up coming around to sins I was struggling with at the time instead. And he recommended I read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm from David, a psalm he wrote about a year after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, killed her real husband, lied about it, married her, and then had a child with her. This psalm was David's response to God after being confronted by the prophet Nathan to confess and repent. As I read through this psalm, a few verses really cut out to me. One of them was verse 4, which says, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you were justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Then also verses 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It was at this point that I realized, realized the reality of my sin. In the weeks following, I could see the depth of my sin at the same time begin to understand many of the things that I picked up over church in the past few years. I began to understand what repentance looked like, what faith looked like, what trusting in God actually meant, and what, have, what God's grace actually meant. It was shortly after one understood salvation as being a gift from God, not a product, product of my active or passive works. There is nothing I could do in my own works or by my own personal merit to be at a better standing with God. I had certainly seen this being in the depths of my sin. There was also no sin I could commit that was too much for Christ to take on at the cross. This was what broke me, that I could do nothing more powerful in my sin to outweigh the power of Christ in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin. It was then that I gave my life to Christ. I surrendered all that I had because he was all that I wanted. He was the one who could rescue me from my sin. He does this out of his great love, out of his rich grace and mercy. So I'd like to take a look now at a passage in the book of Ephesians, specifically Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. 
So it starts in verse 1. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all formerly walked, formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today, the blessing that it is. And Lord, I pray that as I speak, that it would be of you, Lord, that the words that come out of my mouth would be yours and not mine. Lord, if anything is of me, I pray that it would quickly be forgotten. But Lord, what is of you, I pray that it sticks in our hearts and our minds and stays with us through the rest of our weeks and the rest of our lives. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians in the early 60s AD. He wrote this while imprisoned in Rome. And although he was a prisoner, he was still able to receive visitors, which is how he was able to get all these different letters to the different churches, including this one to the church in Ephesus. So he starts the letter off in the first chapter, talking about how we as Christians have redemption from our sins through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness, forgiveness of our transgressions, all according to the riches of God's grace. He goes on to say that those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit are those who listened and believed in the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation. He finishes out that first chapter describing the authority of Christ to forgive our sins and the hope that we can have for salvation in Christ alone. This brings us to the second chapter of Paul's letter. He begins the first three verses describing the state of humans and their sinfulness. In verse 1, Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not drowning, not just lost in your sin, but dead in your sin. We are dead in our sin. Stephen Lawson describes the state of sinners as having to be one of three things. He says people are either good, they can save themselves or they're already good, so they don't have to worry about that. They're sick, so they aren't well, but with a little help they could get there. Or they are dead. They have no hope to save themselves, and being dead they can do absolutely nothing. According to Lawson, people will place themselves in one of these three categories, but only one is accurate, only one is truthful, that we are dead in our sin because of our sin. In order to understand the good news of the gospel, we must first understand the bad news as well. It's the bad news that shows how good the good news really is. We are, and the bad news is this, that we are totally depraved, completely and utterly spiritually dead because of our sinful nature, and we cannot do any good works to offset the bad. We cannot take any steps towards salvation on our own. We must understand that we are helpless to save ourselves and that we need someone to intervene. Now I'm a pretty visual person, so seeing pictures and illustrations tend to help me conceptualize things like this. Unfortunately, I'm not an artist, so this is all that we've got. But imagine, if you will, that this black line at the top is, is the perfect level of righteousness that we need to reach, the perfect standard being Christ himself. The people who think that they are good, they think they're already there, so no worries, I've got this covered on my own. Now the people who are sick, they believe that they've just kind of fallen short of the glory of God. 
they take Romans 3.23 to think that they just barely missed the mark, and with a little help from heaven, they can get back up to that perfect standard. They can do this through like their, their positions in morality or through their acts of religiosity. But consider those who are dead in their sins, the people who understand that they have no hope to save themselves. They know that there's no good work that they can do to save themselves on their own, and that they need Christ to save them. They know that it's Christ himself who lived a perfect life, and they cannot course correct after already falling short of God's glory. This graph is honestly a poor example of the depth of our sin, because in reality, the depth of our sin reaches all the way to the depths of hell, where we deserve to experience God's wrath for sinning against his holy being. Now, I don't show you this graph to discourage you, but to encourage you. Praise God for the work Christ did on the cross to bring us out of death and into life. In verses 1 through 3, Paul uses words in the past tense to show that this spiritual death is no longer who we are in Christ. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We formerly walked according to the course of this world. We formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh and were by nature children of wrath. This is no longer true for the regenerated Christians. What is present tense for unbelievers is now the past tense for believers. Unbelievers are dead in their transgressions and sins and walk according to the flesh and the world. Believers are dead to their transgressions and sins, are alive in Christ, and walk according to his word. It is crucial for us to understand the depth of our sin, to understand the greatness of God's mercy. All we can bring to the table of righteousness is our own sin and our own failures. We have no works, no personal merit that would go in the positive category of our salvation. We can never own a portion of the work in our salvation. If you believe that you are just a little sick, or even fully healthy, then you won't understand the extent of God's grace. You won't see what he's done for you, despite all of your sin. But for those of us who know how far we have fallen, and what it takes, is, or what is required to get us back to that perfect standard, God's grace is immense. He is rich in mercy. We mu what must we do to be saved? We cannot do anything to be saved. It is Christ alone who saves us. In verse 5, Paul gives us a reminder, in case we've forgotten the past few verses, that we are dead in our transgressions. Prior to Christ, all of our good works were empty sacrifices that led us into sin, not salvation. God does not love us because of the things he loved, because of the things we've done. He loves us despite the things we've done. And this is explained more thoroughly in verses four through six. Here we see just some of the attributes of God. We see that God is rich in mercy, has a great love for us, can resurrect by bringing us out of death and sin to alive in Christ. He is gracious and he is generous. What God is and what he has done is infinitely greater than what we were and what we have done. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is also no good work that we can do to be in a better standing with God. Among all God's many attributes is the fact that God is gracious. God does not keep us at arm's length until we become more like him, until we become perfect like him. He indwells believers immediately when they abandon all hope of saving themselves and trust in Christ alone to save them. In these verses, we see what we were, who we are, and how it happened. We were dead in our sin, children of wrath. We are reborn in Christ, a new creation. And this happens because of God's grace. Not only does God make us alive in Christ after being spiritually dead, he allows us to be with him in heaven.
Now, it's great that God has saved us from our sin and now grants us eternal life with him in Christ. But why did he do it? Why not just let part of our salvation be on us to acquire? Why can't Christians live their life free from sinning since we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Why did God choose this path for us, to be the one, for us as Christians to be the one that we follow? Paul gives his answers to these why questions in verses 7 through 10. Beginning in verse 7, we're told why God saves us. This is indicated by the so that. He, the reason is so that God might show the surpassing riches of his grace um, and kindness toward us. God wants us, as his creation, to know the grace that he has for us. Despite our rebellion and sin against him, he has more grace for us than we can even begin to imagine. He shows the richness or the immense wealth of this grace and kindness toward us in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. In order to show his love for us, God sent his son to take on the form of a man, to live a perfect life so that he would be the perfect sacrifice for us when he dies on the cross for our sins, taking on the very wrath of God that we deserve ourselves. But it didn't just end there. God's kindness is not just keeping us from the wrath of God, but raising us out of our spiritual death to be with him in Christ in the heavenly places. When God saves us, he regenerates us into a new creation. It is by his words that the universe was created, and it is by his word that we are made a new creation. The word became flesh. The word that spoke the universe into existence took on the form of a man in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. When Jesus came, he said, let there be life. Only God can speak such things into existence. He makes us a new creation by his grace, which is a gift. And we believe that through faith, which is also a gift. Our personal faith in itself is not the mechanism by which we are saved. God saves us by his grace. It is through the gift of faith that we, are, uh, we understand this. And it's after we regenerate that we receive this gift. We receive, gra- we receive faith after we regenerated to make a response th- to him through belief and repentance. Now please hear me that faith is not an unimportant or a lesser gift of God. Faith is what connects us to God the God that saves us through the gospel. This grace is not of ourselves, and this faith is not of ourselves. When we turn to either either of these gifts into products of our own works, we are believing in a works-based form of salvation. To put verse 9 in another way, not by works so that no one may be self-righteous. Despite all the good works we think of as our own, despite the faith given to us, we are saved by Christ alone. Vodi Bakum on the topic of workspace righteousness and salvation in Christ alone says that we cannot manufacture the second birth any more than we can manufacture the first. Which of us was formed by our own hand? God formed each of us in our mother's womb. A ploy of Satan is to get people to rely on ourselves for salvation just enough that we don't fully rely on God. Some people may think that they will earn their salvation by doing enough good works, by doing something that will outweigh the outrageously bad or by having enough faith. By sheer grit and determination, they can have a faith that will save themselves. Friends, we can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. We cannot rely on, our, rely on ourselves to be responsible for even 1% in the work of our salvation, or we are condemned. To not trust Christ with 100% of the work is to not trust in the sufficiency of Christ to save us from our sin. May we never fall into this trap of the devil. So what's the application for this? We are saved by the grace of God through the faith of God. What do we do now? Well, now we can do good works that have meaning. 
Good works are a product of our salvation, not the propitiation or the payment itself. Good works do not lead to salvation. Good works are the product of salvation. God created good works for us to do after he saves us. Because we have been saved, we are now his workmanship. And there are good works that God has prepared for us that are from him. Works-based faith is man's attempt to pave a road to heaven, brick by brick, good work by good work. But God has already paved the way, brick by brick through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He then places believers on this path and now tells us to faithfully walk along it, along this good road of good works that are in Christ Jesus. A proof of our transformation from being dead in our transgressions and sins, as we see in the first few verses, to alive in Christ, is that we are, we are made God's workmanship. Our good works are God's good works that he prepared for us to do before we even did them. In my own life before I became a Christian, I struggled and stumbled with having perfect and holy intentions whenever I would do these good works. While the goal after regeneration is for us to have good works with holy intentions, we should not cease to do these good works because we see our own selfishness, our own pride and sinfulness as we carry them out. God can and does use broken people to accomplish his perfect will. We are broken because of our sin, but God in his perfect being is still able to use us to accomplish his perfect will. So we must continue to walk in these good works and be sanctified daily as we become more like Christ. If you remember nothing else from today, please remember this, that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, for good works to the glory of God.